Tsalofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up, Japan will release its treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean this week. Also, there's a lot that the public don't know about. And even though I had the experience of being in local government, it's still a strange beast. After 16 years, Alpito William Seal exits New Zealand's parliament. And later, Pacific countries are urged to work together to combat cyber attacks. The government of Japan has given its stamp of approval for Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, to start releasing more than 1 million tonnes of treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean this week. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has told media he's asked TEPCO to swiftly prepare for the water discharge in accordance with the plan approved by the Nuclear Regulation Authority. Lydia Lewis has the story. The Prime Minister says the water release is expected to start on August 24th. All the while, Pacific leaders remain on the fence about the issue. The Melanesian spearhead group, or MSG, which is meeting in Port Vila, has been urged by Vanuatu's foreign minister to issue a statement requesting Japan scrap the release. On the other hand, former PIF chair and Fiji Prime Minister Siti Vanidamboka says he's satisfied Japan's plan is safe after reading the UN Nuclear Agency's report. He's also apologised for speaking out of turn ahead of meeting with the Forum Troika, which has officially said it's yet to make a decision on Japan's plan. Vanuatu's only female MP, Gloria Julia King, says she's praying for strength following the recent political impasse in the country. Plans by Vanuatu's oppositions to vote out the Speaker Siolet Simeon failed at an extraordinary parliamentary session on Tuesday morning. The parliament was expected to debate 11 bills introduced by the government during the sitting. However, the government only has 23 MPs on its side and was forced to withdraw the bills. Ms King, who is also the third deputy speaker, spoke to Calvin Anthony in Port Vila. Sitting in the chamber representing half of Vanuatu's population, I've come to appreciate that this is what happens when it comes to a parliament sitting. However, I do think that half of it is probably not necessary. I mean, we've just come out of a pandemic. We've just had two cyclones. We're gifted for disasters, so we should be in recovery mode. People have too much time. For, for a democratic country, there needs to be both. The timing, I'm not sure if it's right when the country is trying to recover, when the tr- country is trying to get on its feet. Vanuatu has a lot to celebrate for in the nine months that we've been in government. There's been steps moving forward in regards to um, economy, airlines, almost everything, something happening every week. That's a cause to celebrate. Whether it's appreciated by everyone, that's what we're not sure of. But we can agree that the whole of Vanuatu does not need this now. So sitting in there, I'm praying for strength not to have to say things yet because if I do say it as a woman, it won't be nice things. But more importantly, that the house needs to be in order. But sometimes there needs to be a reminder that we are here voted in by our constituents to act in the interests of our interests of our people and so when we speak we need to be representing them fully and accordingly whether we're serving the self-interest of certain groupings or personal interests the opposition leader Mr. Lofman said that 
he's not happy with the state of democracy. What's your reaction to a comment like that? Everyone has a right to their say in the chamber. If that's what he thinks, then maybe the ch- he should have said that when he was in leadership less than 12 months ago. Everyone prior to this who were in parliament had the chance to be able to improve the current governing system of Vanuatu. So to say that now, I don't think it's it's fair on the current government. Going forward, there are two court cases. What's next? Vanuatu and its, and its politics. I would, I would call on the whole of Vanuatu to pray. Pray for calm. Pray for peace. Pray for sound mind. For sound decision making. Obviously, it's at the hands of the judiciary system now. But also a reminder to the people who actually put our members of parliament in positions of elite decision making positions. You you are responsible for your MPs. If you need to have a word with them, encourage them, speak to them, now would be a good time to think of the greater good for Vanuatu and not for certain minorities. The Labour MP for Mangare, Alpito William Seal, is leaving Parliament. After 16 years as a Member of Parliament, who knows as well as anyone how the system works and the cultural barriers that are a part of it. Alpito sat down with the House's Johnny Blades to reflect on a parliamentary career that has been concurrent with breakthroughs for Pacifica. I came in during the time of the Helen Clark government, so I spent about six or seven months as a backbencher observing what they were doing in government. And as they exited, I then spent nine years in opposition. Um, probably the best time of learning, although at, at times you felt like, what am I doing here <laughs> in opposition? <laughs> and, then, and then having spent five years as a minister, as the Minister for Pacific Peoples in 2017, and then um, honing in on what I wanted to be able to do for Pacific communities across a number of portfolios, I, I just think that was the absolute privilege. When you first came into Parliament, there weren't that many Pacifica MPs, uh, really just a few up to then. I'm thinking of, you know, Taito, Philip Field, Arthur and I. Now it's at its highest level yet. That's right. So when I came in, Taito Philip Field was in here, Arthur and I. Then we, Mark Goshi, came in. He became the first Minister of Pacific uh, Heritage. Then Winnie, Dame Winnie, Lord Manuel Winnie Laban came in. She was the first Pacific woman. And then Charles Chabal came in, first Tahitian. And I used to work with these guys. And so when I came in, I says, well, I'm the first youngest and and handsomest of the lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I had the opportunity of learning from all of them and more particularly working closely with Mark Goshi and Luman Wild, Dame Winnie Laban, as they were exiting and as I was coming in. And what's it like coming into a, a very Palangi structure, this Westminster system, as a Pacific person? You know, there must be hurdles in, in various ways that others don't probably even start yeah. to think about. Yeah. There's a lot that the public don't know about. And even though I had the experience of being in local government, it's still a strange beast. Um, it's a fiefdom of its own. Um, and absolutely, y- you do have to learn quite a lot when you come in here. It's not a place that is receptive or inviting of other cultures. Uh, and particularly so when you look at the history 
of the system that you have. I mean, I can remember when I came in, uh, it was the speaker, Margaret Wilson. Um, when I asked I'd like to be sworn in in Samoan, she accommodated. Perfect. I swore in as an MP 1st of April 2008 in both English and Samoan. Those are the languages that I use. I was particularly proud to say it in Samoan because of my father and the community that I represent. But following uh, the defeat of the Labour government, it was a bit of a challenge with the National Party when they came in. I remember having a bit of a fight with the Speaker and the Whips during that time, and I persisted. I was allowed, although they gave me the excuse of, look, it will take too long if you would give everybody the opportunity to do two languages. <laughs> um, Didn't want to set a precedent. No. Yeah. But strangely enough, I think the the class of 2020 where we saw so many MPs come, not just Pacific but Māori and also uh, the ethnic communities, all of them speaking their own language and all of them got the opportunity to do that. But you're absolutely right. From small beginnings, uh, we always believed in South Auckland that once the door was open to having the first Pacific MP, that others would follow, and that's the case that we have today. Yeah, and one or two Pacifica MPs in this current term have mentioned you as being a bit of a mentor to them. Is that something you've sought to do to help others coming through? Culturally, you know, as somebody that was referred to as the senior or the elder, it was always important to be able to show the others the ropes, if you like. Local government did help me. Others also took that path. When people ask me, I, you know, what, how do you prepare yourself to be a member of parliament? Well, I said, serve your community, but local government does help. Uh, understanding the politics and understanding what's really, really important. It was also Parakura Horomia, the late Parakura Horomia, who always said to me, look, <laughs> and he calls everybody chief, but he always said to me, chief, when your people come, and there was, I think at the time, Asenati was coming through, um, Leao Asenati Taylor for New Zealand First. And he says, reach out, support your people as they come through, which I did. But you also have to be very careful. So I reached out not just to the Labour Party MPs, but to New Zealand First, as well as the Green and National, always being willing to look happy to share anything that I might know but also being cautious that you've got to allow others to find their own way. To listen to the full interview with Alpito William Seal, head on over to the house at rnz.co.nz, produced with funding from Parliament's Office of the Clerk. Australia and New Zealand are urging Pacific countries to work with them to develop a collective vigilance against the increasing frequency and severity of cyber attacks being carried out in the region. According to Bank Info Security, the Asia-Pacific region faced the most cyber attacks during 2022, as observed by IBM's threat intelligence platform. IBM says the region accounted for 31% of all incidents monitored during 2022, putting it slightly ahead of Europe at 28% and North America at 25%. Brendan Dowling, Australia's ambassador for cyber affairs and critical technology, is visiting New Zealand this week as part of his first Pacific tour, visiting various countries and talking about how to collectively build up the region's cyber security. 
Kurui Hukun spoke with Ambassador Dowling and began by asking him what some of the main cybersecurity concerns were in the Pacific region. So we see that the region is uh, increasingly digitising, that people are taking advantage of being online. We're seeing government services move online. We're seeing a lot of e-commerce and a lot of businesses uh, move their services online. And that's a really positive thing for the region. We think digitisation can bring a huge amount of uh, economic benefits for the region. At the same time, we can see that malicious cyber activity whether it's scams, whether it's ransomware attacks, whether it's nation states looking at uh, critical infrastructure, are really disrupting our ability to engage safely online. Those threats and that malicious activity is something that we see really commonly in Australia, and unfortunately we see it playing out uh, in the Pacific as well. So as I talk to our counterparts and friends around the region, I can see that there's a real appetite to engage online, to be connected for social, recreational, economic uh, reasons. But at the same time, people are wary about some of the malicious activity they see. They're wary about their information being stolen. They're wary about being scammed. And so they're expecting from governments be they in Australia, be they in the Pacific Island nations or New Zealand, they're expecting governments to be more proactive about protecting them online and making sure that we can take advantage of those benefits without having uh, our security compromised. Starting maybe with the the governments themselves, from from what we've been seeing, we understand a lack of infrastructure, manpower, um, governments building e-systems, but they're not having backups, not having the capacity to protect these systems is, is some of the biggest risks we're looking at the government level. Uh, uh, is that is that your understanding of it as well? Yeah, I think we see that um, at the government level, also in the, in the private sector, the issues are, are quite similar and quite common uh, across the region. And uh, we do see exactly the same issues facing Australia as well. Uh, the lack of skilled personnel. Uh, we need all our workers, all of us, to be more cyber aware, but we also need more cybersecurity professionals who are actually running government systems uh, and networks. Uh, we see that some of the technology we all use uh, can sometimes not be very well protected. Uh, so we see that some technology, such as mobile devices, such as uh, smart devices that we connect to the internet, and then to government services uh, that are running off um, uh, hardware and, and servers are not necessarily uh, well protected. Part of that's on the technology market. We're seeing too many products being sold into the region that don't have security at their core, that don't have security by default. It requires too much effort to either purchase or turn on some of those security features. So we need to make it easier for people by having better technology out there. But at the same time, we do have the responsibility, whether it's within government or within our homes or within our businesses, to do some of the basic cybersecurity measures. We estimate that somewhere around 90% of cyber attacks can be prevented by basic cyber hygiene. That means updating your password. It means patching your software. But I think a, a struggle that uh, governments in the Pacific face is exactly the same struggle that governments in Australia face. Digital infrastructure is expensive. Maintaining it is expensive. We need the right people with the right skills to do it, but it does require that investment in quality products uh, that are updated over their lifespan uh, to be more secure. 
So we really want to support the region to take advantage of all the benefits that digitization brings while not sacrificing security and safety uh, along the way. So for Australia in this region, working in partnership with New Zealand, uh, we're really trying to get out there. We're trying to promote good cybersecurity practices within and outside of uh, government. We're trying to support skills development by running training uh, workshops, bringing people to Australia to learn from uh, our experiences uh, where it's relevant. And we're also supporting uh, the uplift of technology uh, in the region. So it's a whole of nation effort. It's a whole of government effort. And it takes a long time to build up this security. But the most important thing is prioritising that within our government policymaking, within the cultural practices we are uh, all employ. And that's something that everyone can take responsibility for. That's Pacific Ways for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.